Hello, and welcome back to our next episode of Private Markets Made Human, the podcast from Hamilton Lane that brings information and perspective from our greatest asset, our people. Today, we are speaking with two of my colleagues, Hamza Azim and Mitesh Pabari. Guys, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having us. Before we dive in, can I ask both of you to introduce yourselves and the role that you play at the firm? Yeah, sure. Shall I, shall I go first, Katie? Um, so my name's Mitesh Pabari. Um, I've been at the firm now for uh, coming up to 12 years, actually. Um, I've split my time a bit in our investing functions all in London. Um, I spent my original first nine years in our secondary investing activities. Uh, and now for the past three years, I've spent uh, time in our primary activities. Uh, and within my role in primary investing, I manage a large number of our core GP relationships for our platform and cover new ideas across uh, EMEA. So yeah, I'm Hamza Zim. Uh, I joined Hamilton Lane in 2021. So I've been here for just over a year. And I'm a principal in our Evergreen portfolio management team. Thank you both for being here. I'm excited to talk through some big topics today on the macro and micro environment. Mitesh, maybe you can start us off and give us a quick overview on the firm's positioning in Europe in terms of you know number of offices, people, client base, etc. Yeah, sure, Katie. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, just as we've seen investor demand for private market strategies grow globally, Europe has been no exception. Um, so we've continued to grow the business in, in Europe. We've bolstered our teams. We're now in excess of 50 people in EMEA across six offices, which is double the number we were just three or four years ago. Um, it's really been intentionally and thoughtfully adding talent in the right geographies. Uh, in the last couple of years, we've expanded our base of people in our hub in London, uh, but also added to our footprint on the continent, notably on the, the business development side with offices in Milan, in Stockholm, and in, and in Zug. I'd say that the variety of products has grown to an increasing base of institutional clients. But I think the other place to mention, and this is where Hamza actually comes in, is our growing clientele on the private wealth and retail uh, channels as we've rolled out our, our evergreen products. And so this is where um, Hamza has played a key role. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, excited to be part of the expansion story we have here in Europe as part of the Evergreen Portfolio Management Team. I'm based here. And we also have uh, business development colleagues focusing on private wealth channels. Yeah, absolutely. The retailization of private equity in Europe is certainly a theme that we've seen develop over the last decade, but has really taken, taken off in the last few years. So grateful to have you both here. So let's start with the macro environment, the backdrop there. Mitesh, if I were to ask you three words that could describe Europe in its current state, what, what are those three things? What would come to mind for you? Uh, I mean, if I tell you how it feels, I guess, rather than stating the, the obvious kind of inflation, energy and, and the like, and we can, we can certainly touch on those. But how does it feel? I'd say, look, it's complex. There certainly are challenges. It, it feels a bit foggy, I'm going to say. Um, I, th I think that's probably the way that I think we would most uh, feel. But I think, you know, optimistically, there, there is opportunity, I think, as, as well. Yeah, that's interesting. Hamza, what, what is your version of that? Yeah, I think with everything going on, it's, it's, it's hard to summarize it in three words. But if, if I were to pick three, I'd probably say inflation, energy, and there I think geopolitics, crisis, but also transition, uh, and opportunity. That's great. I heard you both say opportunity, which is, which is a nice change, although fuzzy and, <laughs> fuzzy and inflation are always top of mind as well. I think that you know, in 2023, there are certainly these, these challenges and Europe has had to respond to them in their own way, right? Supply chain challenges, energy rationing, all of those things. And European businesses have had to face these headwinds, you know, kind of front and center. 
So I guess my question is, in your view, how is Europe responding to these challenges at present? Yeah, I think it's, uh, I mean, some of the challenges that you mentioned, Katie, it's what we see at a global level is what we've experienced here in Europe as well. And how the Eurozone is responding to it, somewhat similar to what you've seen at a global level and what we see in the U.S. I mean, you take inflation and interest rates to start with. We've, we've been in a rising rate environment. We've seen the ECB raise rates by 250 basis points in less than six months, which has been the fastest they've done in the history. Then coming to energy, what we've experienced and seen is uh, in response to the crisis, you saw measures like modulating consumption, filling gas storages, maximizing coordination. Obviously, the mild weather helped, but there was also a realization that we can't always rely, uh, rely on the mild weather and there needs to be measures taken for sustained investment in clean energy generation. Uh, so I think th th there's been some overlap in what we've seen at a global level, but there have been certain nuances that have been specific to Europe. Yeah, and you mentioned, you know, sort of inflation, but the UK, the European central banks have certainly continued to fight to control that inflation. But what does it really feel like on the ground? I mean, there are certainly tightening financial conditions, there's tax hikes, there's spending cuts. What does it feel to be a consumer? And what are, what are we hearing from the GP world around, you know, businesses today in, in the region? Yeah, maybe I can start with the consumer and Matesha, I'll let you talk about from a GP perspective. Yeah. But from a consumer point of view, Katie, I think, you know, we, we hear about cost of living crisis. And what I would say is it is very real. You see that on a day to day basis. I mean, there was, uh, the, there was a European Parliament barometer which said nine in 10 Europeans are worried about the cost of living. Right. So purely from a consumer perspective, it is very real and something people experience on a day to day basis. Yeah, I mean, I'd definitely add to that. I think, you know, the, the, we haven't yet seen the full impact of inflation on the consumer, right? And and obviously, it's not all about just energy and gas prices, but those are a big component of that. And even though we've seen energy and gas prices come off to a degree, uh, we've still seen that inflation is still extremely, extremely sticky. Um, and so, you know, just given what you're seeing in the labor markets. So I think, um, look, businesses are, are seeing that as well. I think uh, most are very cautious heading into 2023. You know what are we what have we seen that the GPs really do? I think they're, they're trying to measure and anticipate that as much as they can. You know, I think where we've seen probably most alleviation has been on the supply side, where some of the supply chains globally, the challenges that we saw there post COVID have alleviated. But what's really the unknown is is the demand side that that Hamza noted earlier. And so I think we're we're seeing GPs prepare for that, um, anticipate that, you know, guide their management teams on how to think about that. But in, invariably, it's going to be a difficult environment, um, just as I think we're seeing globally. And obviously, when you add um, energy and, and, and food prices, I think it will stay elevated for some period in, in, in Europe. But again, um, that is, uh, again, the, the main thing is groups are having time to prepare for that as well. Right. So do we think inflation has sort of peaked right now in Europe and we expect to hold sort of steady state for 2023? Or do you still see it rising or fluctuating? Yeah, if I take a stab there, I mean, uh, look, I think it's slightly come off. I mean, I think the last numbers I saw was about 9% thereabouts. I think, you know, it's hard to call it, right? And has it has it really peaked? I mean, there are a few factors in Europe that could really change that, right? So uh, again, geopolitics, and I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on that, uh, can play a big role. What if, you know, Russia does something unexpected? You know, although dependency on Russia has reduced, it's there is, there is still some component there. And so, um, you know, barring um, uh, unintended actions uh, or unanticipated uh, impact. I think, uh, uh, again, we would generally see inflation hopefully under control 
But I think that there are other factors that I think could potentially keep that inflation a bit more stickier in Europe. That's interesting. I mean, obviously, if we had recorded this maybe even a few weeks ago, we would have been talking about this energy crisis even more, but it seemed to have uh, abided a little bit, right, where the the government has certainly stepped in and moved mountains in some cases to make sure that the comfort and safety of the citizens is top priority. Um, Obviously, it's been a little bit more of a mild winter. There's certain things going on, but it's it's known that the natural gas supply and other storage in Europe is going to be depleted. So I think that's going to be a continued theme as we look to the future. Do you think these challenges will have longer term impacts on European competitiveness? Yeah, I think from longer term competitiveness point of view, uh, there's a couple of things to keep in mind. Firstly, is the fact that Eurozone as a region has reacted to it in a way which I think is, is impressive. In terms of there was already focus on uh, sort of green energy, et cetera, uh, given the, the the net zero targets that they have in less than three decades. I think this has somewhat escalated that transition. So there is a potential that we do see longer term impact in competitiveness. But at the same time, I think the pace with which the transition is happening now might curb some of that impact. Yeah, and no, I'd agree there. And I, I think just to add, I mean, look, we've seen the risk is always what does next winter look like? And that's the invariable thing. So in, indeed, you know, Germany has reduced its reliance on, on, on Russia by, by quite a magnitude. I think the European numbers, you know, if you looked at the start of last year, 40% of, of European needs were, were coming from Russia down to about 17%, I think, by the middle of the year. So there's been a lot of things done on the supply side. And, and I think we know most of that has been on the LNG side. But actually, we're starting to see some countries take steps around the demand part of this, right? Now, Germany's taken a real lead there in terms of some of its uh, its goals, which have been very broad. I mean, I mean, I think Germany's set out goals to reduce gas consumption by some 20%. Now, if that works, and that is very bold, Germany could emerge out of this energy crisis, a much greener and efficient economy. And so that boosted productivity at a lower energy cost would increase energy security and ease the path to more renewable systems. So there's a bit of a circular effect here. But again, we're seeing some some great commitments from countries. The key thing there will be kind of short-termism over more longer-term views. But I think there is that genesis that we're seeing on the demand side now slightly emerge as opposed to just the, sh- the supply side measures we've seen. Yeah, that's an interesting point, Mitesh. We talked about that actually last year too. You know, Does all of this geopolitical activity speed up the development of the green energy sources. And you really are starting to see that happen in, in certain countries, and more so and then in others. I guess the longer term questions is, you know, what does it do to defense budgets? What does it do for using coal or other maybe less friendly um, environmental, you know, resources to be able to bridge that gap? So I guess, you know, from your perspective, if we're honing in a little bit more on geopolitical risk, obviously Europe was more impacted on the invasion than in any other regions. And the war has just sort of continued to clip along. From your view on the ground, is this something that is still talked about daily? Are we seeing countries kind of do more? Is it baked into sort of what we're seeing from a macro activity day to day? I think, um, I mean, look, there's there's a few areas of policy that I think people are, are keeping an eye on. And obviously, we're all attuned to, you know, monetary policy and what the ECB does to around growth. But I think that the couple of other areas of policy that to keep a keen eye on are policy coordination over energy supplies and policy coordination over uh, actions against Russia's aggression. 
I think when you look at these areas, this is kind of where we've seen you know Europe come together, right? And Europe historically has been a compromise machine. And when you get something as severe as energy and and you know war, not not that far away, these are big stakes, and we've really seen Europe come together. There are differing, uh, you know, we are seeing different opinions on on immediate responses and the timing of responses. We've just seen the discussions around sort of sending tanks in. But again, we're seeing a lot of coordination around energy supplies. And and if you look at general funding, you know, you've just seen Germany, for example, raise uh, its commitment to spending on 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 defense, which is a which is a big statement. So I think we are seeing the right sort of coordination coordinating measures. The key elephant in the room here is is time and how long this goes for. So there there is a difference between kind of short term political will versus long term. But I, as I said, I, I think for now, you know, the nature of the EU has always been compromise. And I think we're seeing elements of that. I think, you know, COVID time taught the EU what solidarity really meant, right? And so I think we're seeing uh, we're seeing that. Hamza, anything to add? Yeah, I think uh, on your point regarding defense budgets, as Mitesh touched on it already, we have already seen, uh, you know, countries across Europe increasing their defense budget. We've seen the Western Military Alliance agreeing to spend 2% of the economic output uh, on defense by 2024. So these are all measures that were, you know, it, it wasn't something that was expected before the war, but as a reaction to it, as Mitesh mentioned, we've seen that solidarity. You you asked whether it's still something that is talked about. Yes, it is. But I think one thing that we can cons- consistently notice is that the the response that Eurozone has is is a combined one to this. That's great. It's such a different position than we were in this time last year when there was so much volatility, so much unknown. And it seems like with with challenges come opportunity. So maybe that's a good segue yeah. to the private markets, right? And Mitesh, maybe I'll, I'll start with you here. Could you frame for us what the opportunity set looks like today for investors that have exposure to Europe? Yeah, sure. And, and I think just to kind of link it to, to what we've been talking about, I and mean, we've also you just said look, 2022 was difficult, right? And 2023 is not going to feel very different, right? But I think when you look at many of the headwinds, I think they're they feel like they're priced into the markets and valuations than, than most other nations. And so, again, there is a feeling that uncertainty will bring opportunity. And so uh, I think that that's the piece that I think that, that we're quite focused on, that relative um, sort of valuation piece. But uh, yeah, if we turn to private markets, I mean, if you look at the broad um, environment, Europe really has always been a highly fragmented market. That's probably one of the features that makes it quite different from the US. Uh, you know, always think of it as a, as a collection of markets, each with different traits and ways of doing business. It's very much a market of, of, of small funds um, serving or smaller businesses, more small and mid businesses or, or SMID. And so if you take the macro that we just talked about, there's going to be two key challenges for investors, right? One is uh, economic growth will be uneven geographically, and it's going to be uneven uh, within Europe, uh, probably more, more dependent on local dynamics. And number two, when you think about your experiences through COVID and all the geopolitical challenges today, there is a trend towards deglobalization, ensuring more security of supplies closer to home. And so when you think about those two factors, uh, deglobalization and, and that kind of uneven geographic growth, that's where the fragmented nature of Europe really is, is well positioned. Europe is a, is a market with local GPs catering to the unique aspects of, uh, of businesses in their local markets. And so competitively, if these growth drivers become more localized, it's that inherent fragmentation that will continue to create the best opportunities. So uh, I think these are some of the features, I think, that make Europe quite unique. 
you know, going forward, who will be the most impacted businesses? Probably the small businesses. And when you look at Europe, it is largely a, a, a region of family-owned businesses. I mean, family-owned businesses make up 60% of all companies in, in Europe. And these are the types of businesses that will need help and can signal some of the best opportunities, probably some of the biggest dispersion of returns, but also some of the best opportunities if you pick the right managers. And so I think these are some of the, the features of Europe that I think will, will come through as, uh, uh, as these challenges uh, persist. So if we focus in on the buyout market maybe for a minute, and we kind of think about this in terms of, you know, there's the large cap groups that are more global or pan-regional. You've got sort of those mid caps, as you're mentioning, small cap, more country or strategy specific. What has deal activity been like in those different sectors and those different GPs? I can take that, Katie. So from a from a, a deal activity point of view, if you compare it to last year to 2021, naturally you saw the deal activity relatively lower. But if you compare it to years before, it's pretty much at par with it, right? So we've seen a fair bit of deals coming through to the market in terms of volume, in terms of what has actually been getting done has probably been somewhat lower. And that is down to the fact that there has been that uh, spread between the bid and the ask, right? Mm-hmm. Having said that, though, if you look at uh, sort of assets in some of the more coveted sectors, they continue to trade hands at, at, at full valuations. And sponsors are expressing more conviction in assets that they have known or tracked for quite some time. So to Mithesh's point, you, you, do, you do see some dispersion. Volumes, yes, in terms of deals getting done, perhaps have been somewhat lower. But if you look at some of the more attractive sectors or assets, they continue to be, you know, contested heavily. So from your perspective, it sounds like we are seeing deals, good deals continue to get done, which arguably means that distribution activity is happening, recapitalization activity is is happening. So how are the underlying businesses? Have we seen any change in the last 12 to 24 months in terms of how, how the businesses have, you know, continued to grow in this current volatile environment? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think some of the the stats are, you know, invariably surprising, right? When when people think of what what they would expect, but I think we've seen GPs quite uh, divisive over some of the sectors that they've been exposed to. They've been quite careful about where they've added exposures. You know, coming into COVID, we were late in a cycle, and I think GPs were very careful about layering exposures to less cyclical businesses into the right sort of sectors. And so, when I talked about some of that uneven growth, um, we have seen that come through in portfolios. So, by and large, portfolios have been performing. You know, again, corollary to to kind of what we would expect, but I think that's predominantly why we've seen private market valuations, you know, keep up really, and that is really down to underlying performance as opposed to you know more driven around sort of valuations. So what's interesting is, um, you know, deals to a degree are are getting done, but I, I, you know, we will say that there are a number of conversations happening and things are taking longer. We've seen a number of groups arrive at more creative solutions to bridge that gap in valuation. So conversations are longer. Sometimes there's contingent or earnout style arrangements based on next year's earnings. You know, discussions are, are generally taking longer. I was just speaking to a, a GP earlier in the building today who just reiterated the work that their teams are doing to hang around deals, right? And sort of patience pays off. But it certainly is taking longer to get comfortable. And so, again, we are seeing GPs find ways to get deals done, but, but certainly the environment uh, is more tougher. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I was talking to a GP yesterday as well that was talking about patients, and they were looking at a deal that traded at 13, 15 times, and the deal got hung, and now they're doing it at 11, which is, which is really interesting and great to hear. Yeah, from a, but, from but, a, also I, I, sorry, but also I would just say that, um, 
again, there is a bit of a difference between some of the larger deals and the smaller deals, given what we've seen in the financing markets, right? So again, you know, at the larger end, probably anywhere north of raising over 500 million, it is more challenging, right? And you're seeing a number of the larger, more pan-European or global groups really try to use different means to kind of solve for the financing piece, portable debt packages. Some of the more global groups with balance sheets have often used like, their own balance sheets. Um, so it's, it's quite harder at the larger deal end. I'd say at the smaller deal end is probably where we've seen a bit more deal flow. And that again, that really has been driven by the, the help of the private credit market. If we switch sides and we talk about uh, venture and growth for a second, because there's a lot of anecdote in this part of the market as well. We heard about sort of a retrenchment of US managers sort of away from doing deals, you know, internationally. Is that a trend you're seeing? Is this a is this a good buying opportunity for maybe those European dedicated funds in the venture and growth space? Yeah, sure. Shall I take that? Um, yeah, sure. No, I, I mean, I think uh, it's been an interesting time. I'm going to say in, in in the venture side. I mean, we you're right. We did see some of the the later stage players depart the market. I'm, I'm going to say it was a retreat of the tourists rather than specifically U.S. groups in general. So indeed, some. European groups did find less less competition to a degree, but I'd say, and there's always been a dearth of capital, right, at at, at the growth end, and so that is predominantly where a lot of the global groups and the U.S. groups uh, did did take up that piece. But um, I'd say most European groups have retreated back to earlier stage investing solutions, where you know valuations generally have been less impacted. Um, I was just speaking to a, a, a large uh, European venture managers just last week. They're a multi manager. Who did actually say that? Look, they're doing very little outside of their seed programs. You know, venture activity is is slow, and even in late stage deals, it's just a different expectation between what their investing teams and their management teams see as the right approach and see as the right um, value. So it's just hard to get a, a, a meeting of minds on valuation or how to take in new capital. But the trend we're seeing now actually is quite interesting. We're seeing U.S. groups coming back to Europe and expanding their teams. I think we're yet to see the the investing piece come back here, but we are seeing a number of US groups invest in local people. Some are looking at raising dedicated funds, so competition will increase. And I think um, you know here, obviously, Europe has not been immune to the cool off in investment, the volatility in valuations, or the the unicorns that have been dehorned. And but I think when you look at the um, European ecosystem, longer term, it's still actually in an interesting place. And so just you know just some of the things as I kind of looked further into the market, even though European tech stocks lost about 400 billion in, in value last year, the, the total value of the system is now just under 3 trillion. That's about four times the size it was uh, just back in 2015. And then when you take account of what you're seeing with the tech layoffs, Europe has now some 1,500 alumni or founders that you know, have started their own firm working for European unicorns during the 2000s. That's a large base of very experienced people who have started businesses who will look to start new ventures. And so I think this is what we're seeing. We're seeing US investors increasingly willing to come to Europe, looking for entrepreneurs rather than historically where some of these European entrepreneurs had to go to the US effectively. So I think that's part of what we're seeing. And so that's where we're seeing groups sort of build up their their teams, uh, but yet to see some of the deal flow return. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think we we like the long-term theme of technology penetration in Europe, and we certainly see an opportunity set there. And maybe one more question, because you kind of touched on it before I turned to what the LPs are doing in Europe. You talked about US-based managers who have you know, teams in Europe, or maybe even European managers that have multi-fund lines now. What has been sort of the, the trend there in terms of some of the bigger 
groups or maybe the international groups sort of expanding into multi-products? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, um, I, I mean, look, all GPs are looking for ways to grow, right? And that can be sort of vertically or horizontally. And so indeed, we have seen groups um, looking to, to grow their franchises, right? And, and as they see successive deal flow and look to continue to back their businesses, you know, we, we have seen more and more groups from the venture side looking to add in more growth exposure from the growth investing side historically, look to add in more earlier stage investor just to get into the right deals at, at the right point. So I think we've seen this kind of natural evolution of, of groups sort of broaden their platforms and their capabilities to support these businesses longer. I think where, um, you, know, you know, will there be a number of those who, who are able to do that successfully? That takes time. And so I think we're still seeing in, in, in Europe, um, you know, a, a more defined market in sort of groups who've done that really well over time. But again, you know, as these groups grow, the, the nature of some of these businesses will tend to turn more global, right? And so that's typically the path that, um, that, that we'll see. So Hamza, maybe if we turn to the LPs in Europe right now, I could ask you a few questions there. But just in terms of what are we seeing from allocation perspectives? What are we seeing from portfolio construction challenges? Are we seeing an increase in secondary activity? Yeah, I think second reason is an increasingly... Uh, growing an interesting sector uh, within within private markets. What we have seen in the secondary space specifically is uh, an increase in both GP and LP-led deals and LP-led space. You're talking about both due to numerator and denominator effect. We did see a fair bit of dispersion between the the, the, the bid and ask, but that has started to converge somewhat. What we have seen also is an emergence of more structured deals happening in the secondary space where you're talking about structure and preference that has helped bridge the bid-ask spreads in both LP and GP-led contexts. And in terms of just the, we talked about sort of the high net worth and the retails investors in Europe, are we seeing them sort of continue to grow to increase allocations? Do they have a healthy appetite? Is that a pocket that we think could be beneficial to you know, not only the European investors, but just the GPs themselves that are in Europe that might be able to absorb some of that capital. Yeah, absolutely. I think the private wealth channels is a pool of capital that in general is pretty, it's, it's, it's huge, right? And it is something that is seen as a future for, for, for private markets. In terms of the appetite, I think uh, given what investors have seen in public markets versus private markets in market downturn environment, not just last year, but in general, we typically tend to see private markets outperform public markets more when there is a market downturn. And obviously, from an ex- investor experience perspective, there is lower volatility. So it continues to be an attractive area from an investor perspective when they compare it to their usual portfolios, which are, uh, which are mainly uh, public markets. Yeah, that's exciting. So as we think about the LPs in Europe, can I ask about ESG and the environmental and financial pledges that are now being made. There are certainly a lot of frameworks. Is that an area that we've seen LPs sort of continue to ask about, continue to put more pressure on the GPs in this space? Yeah, I think from a from an LP perspective, ESG is still front and center of their mind. It is something that is as important as, as it was, you know, sort of before the market downturn that we saw. I think from a company or a corporate perspective, what is important to understand is ESG is more than a 
than a guideline for good times when companies can afford to be benevolent. It's rather a roadmap to a more sustainable value creation. And what we've seen is more and more evidence is emerging that companies that follow a more narrowly defined ESG standards on average outperform the market, right? So I think, yes, as the world economies emerge from overlapping crises, as we talked about, organizations that adhere to ESG ethos have had their commitments tested in certain situations. But I think what is important to understand and appreciate is the fact that it's necessary for organizations to take short-term pain to ensure long-term survival and prosperity. Yeah, it's almost like responsible ownership is table stakes these days. And Mitesh, maybe from where you sit, how do GPs prioritize how they build skills and differentiate here in terms of both, you know, from an ESG risk perspective, but then also a, a return and opportunity perspective? Are they building yeah. teams? Are they, <laughs> are they putting yeah. in more frameworks? Like, how, how is the GP community responding? Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is where there's a huge diversity, right? Resources will vary between large and small GPs. So I think um, we have to acknowledge that that they're all on on different journeys in this respect, but also the whole industry is still on on this journey of, as you say, ascertaining the requirements. Obviously, some of the European regulation has gone a long way towards helping there uh, with some of the SFDR rules. But uh, again, a lot of work is still underway there. I think GPs do acknowledge that they need to invest in their people and their knowledge around this subject, their internal training. These are all the kind of areas that that we focus on in our diligence. And, you know, we really look for commitment from the very top of these GP organizations. What is interesting, though, is that the, the regulatory burden will only ever increase around this, notably some of the pledges under SFDR. And so, you know, what we're now seeing is a lot more stringency uh, around whether people claim to be, you know, SFDR8 or SFDR9. SFDR8 seems a little bit of a catch-all place. You know, obviously, SFDR9 is more definitive in terms of intentionality. But, you know, we're seeing some signs of, you know, groups will get fined and raided over this. I mean, we saw DWS, the the asset management arm of Deutsche, raided last May, and that was a, a wake-up call for a lot of groups. So, again, just coming to that topic of kind of greenwashing uh, or SDG washing, as I sometimes call it, you know, you will see extra scrutiny around this. And so GPs are just very conscious of, of you know, what they're claiming around their funds, any misrepresentations that they're making. The companies are taking note around this as well. But this this will take time, right? So I think, you know, we've seen stats that around one in five GPs measuring ESG are struggling to align with industry standards, right? So there's a lot of work still going on here, but I think definitely the GPs understand that it's a, it's an increasingly added area that they need to add expertise on. And we're seeing more sort of consultants emerge around this space to help them with that. Yes. Expertise and technology. Absolutely. Yeah. So maybe just to kind of wrap up here, two last questions. I guess, first and foremost, if I'm an LP and I'm allocating globally, is Europe an area I should be leading into in 2023? Yeah, I, I can start there, Katie. So I think there's definitely going to be interesting opportunities in Europe. Despite everything that is going on, I think there are certain sectors that are compelling and resilient. I mean, to name or state the obvious, we already talked about clean technology. It's one of the fastest growing investment sectors in Europe, which can be interesting. Uh, and uh, really, those who develop and manufacture that technology will be the foundation of tomorrow's economy, right? Similarly, you look at some of the other sectors in terms of automation and digitalization, climate, fertility, all of these sectors are short of capital. So from an LP perspective, these will be areas that they'll be watching out for and where they may see some interesting opportunities. 
That's great. Yeah, and, and, we, and we talked about um, energy transition earlier, obviously, and 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 obviously there, I you know, I guess the point I'd make there is, you know, lots of talk around sort of real assets and infrastructure, and um, we've seen lots of appeal there. But also, you know, I wouldn't just limit it there. There's also building services, build business services around these kind of assets and supply chains around them, and these are some of the areas that we're seeing some of our you know regular buyout GPs, particularly some of our Nordic focused managers that we've backed uh, build capabilities and expertise around these areas and also building products around these areas. So again, just to just to kind of outline, there is that whole sort of solution around, uh, again, some of these assets that I think will evolve and, and this will present opportunities. That's great. Well, thank you, gentlemen. This has been very enlightening and I feel very up to speed now on all things Europe. So thank you for taking the time and being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening in to another episode of Private Markets Made Human. If you want more information, we welcome you to visit our website or stay tuned for our 2023 market overview, where we dive in even further in the coming short weeks.